Hey guys, Dr. Jamie. I don't know if you guys know this, but almost 75% of Americans are dehydrated. You all know I'm a huge fan of electrolyte supplementation and most Americans are drinking less than 44 ounces of water per day. Well, one thing that might be able to help you get rehydrated and drink more water is by the use of electrolytes. And I wanna introduce you to the Vitamin IQ New Electrolyte Mix. This is the crucial aspect of your wellness. It is intelligent hydration. Not only does it have three times the electrolytes of any sports drink, but it also has a cellular energy blend of D-ribose, taurine, creatine, and NAD precursors. It comes in a delicious orange flavor that my kids love. So if you're looking for a new electrolyte supplement, go check out Vitamin IQ on Amazon or vitaminiq.com. to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast. It is so wonderful to have you back today. I am super excited about today's guest and cannot wait to introduce her. Her name is Dr. Cassie Smith, and she is a dual board certified endocrinologist and a nationally respected speaker, researcher, and locally sought after endocrinologist. She focuses on industry leading hormone therapy and a holistic approach to treating patients struggling with the overwhelming job of making lifestyle changes to rebalance and align their health. She did her undergraduate and medical training at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, right down the road from me. And then transitioned into a lot of research doing major clinical trials centered around diabetes care in her fellowship at the Harold Hamm Diabetes Center in Oklahoma City. After fellowship, her insights in research and forward thinking made her a nationally sought after public speaker for numerous international pharmaceutical companies for which she's presented hundreds of talks locally and nationally. She currently has expanded her practice at Modern Endocrine and plans to continue to use her holistic approach to treating patients with industry leading HRT lab testing, preventative care, lifestyle modifications, and restorative medicine. I am super excited to introduce you all to Dr. Cassie Smith and cannot wait to talk about so many different things that you guys send me DMs and questions about all the time. So we are going to pick her brain. Dr. Cassie Smith, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. So Tell us a little bit about your background. You're obviously a doctor, but I know that you kind of have a personal story that has led you down this path. And a lot of people have, have heard mine. So I want you to share it with all of our listeners. Okay. So whenever I was in medical school, um, I actually developed Graves disease. And so I was in medical school kind of right after the end of medical school and residency. Um, I was on an ICU rotation, got really tachycardic. My heart was really pounding. Um, so thankfully I took some medication, went into remission, made it through med school, made it through residency and, um, wasn't doing a very good job taking care of myself like most doctors. Right. So we're working a lot. We're not sleeping well, we're not eating well. And so after I got out of residency and I was, I practiced a year, I did a chief year. And so I was uh, doing internal medicine. I still wasn't taking very good care of myself and I kind of started not feeling well again. Right. And so I started kind of gaining weight, was very tired, Um, and then realized like you that I had insulin resistance and I had PCOS. And so I was like, okay, great. You know, I'm going to go to fellowship and I'll deal with this later. And so I went to fellowship in Oklahoma, still wasn't doing a very good job taking care of myself, 
although I looked maybe on the outside like I was, like I've never been extremely overweight, but I was heavier, um, but my labs were just a mess. And then I developed from the grades, I developed Hashimoto's. And so then my TPO antibody was really high and I needed thyroid medicine. My hair started falling out. I was tired. Um, I found out again, my insulin levels were really high. And so I just, I was having a lot of issues. And so when I was in fellowship, again, nobody really could offer you anything other than medication, right? They were like, we'll take this medicine, but it was never like, how do you fix this? You know, I was like, well, how do I fix it? What do I do to make it go away? And I was an endocrine fellow and still nobody could tell me, you know, what to do. And so it was kind of frustrating. I got out of fellowship and then I went into private or when I got out of fellowship, I went into working for a hospital system. And again, nobody, you know, nobody talks about this. I'm still not feeling great. I'm on thyroid medicine, still have high insulin levels. Um, and so went on for another two years, just kind of doing what I was told, like, you know, take some medicine, you can't make it any better. And then I decided finally to start my own practice. A lot of that was built on the fact that my patients, I feel like a lot of my patients were doing the same thing. So, right. People come to me, I'm sure you get this. And I was giving them all the medicine I was supposed to give them. They're not getting any better, right? So their diabetes isn't really getting better. They're not losing any weight. I'm giving them all these drugs I've learned about, but I'm not really helping them feel any better. And so I was very frustrated around 2020 whenever I decided to go into my own practice. And whenever I did start my own practice, I was lucky enough to meet an OBGYN who knew about biotin and some hormone replacement. So it kind of introduced me to that. And so then I started researching hormones and just vitamin supplementation and more about thyroid disease. Around the same time, I also, I knew I had PCOS. And so my husband and I were trying to you know, have a baby. And so I was having issues getting pregnant, saw a bunch of doctors, you know, everyone says, oh, I don't know, you just need to do in vitro, but nobody wants to talk to me about my diet or what I can do to make it better. Um, I had some issues with infertility as well. And even after that, everyone's just, you know, let's do testing, let's do genetic testing. And then if it's fine, you can have in vitro. And for me, that was just very frustrating. And so I just kind of through this path have kind of figured out what are the best ways that you can treat some of these things, right? There's a ton of research out there. You've had a lot of great guests on there that talk about, I think that, you, you know, we all have a lot of chronic inflammation, and I truly believe that your thyroid and your gut are kind of a systemic representation of your overall health. And so I started learning these things and I started figuring out, okay, well, how can I fix some of these things, right? Internally, how can I start with my gut to make my thyroid better and to make my hormones better? And so it was just, I think this personal journey where I've been really frustrated because I've seen doctors and I've, you know, I've, I'm supposed to know all the answers, right? But when I was in fellowship in med school, they didn't teach me these things. And so I just started looking for for different answers. And it's through you know, people like you and podcasts like this and some awesome doctors that I've listened to and heard that I just have researched and found a lot of ways that you can holistically start lowering inflammation, helping fix things. So that's kind of how yeah, I think this it's just so wild in medicine. We're like all in our little, you know, specialty areas and we forget sometimes how many things are interconnected. And I like, I, I really believe in my heart of hearts that most doctors go into medicine for the right reasons. And like, we want to help people. And, but then I think you just go through this, you know, traditional training and this indoctrination. And it's just so interesting for me to sit back and listen to you. Like, you know, you're in an endocrine fellowship and like, nobody has a better answer for you than to take medicine to destroy your thyroid or to just take, just take this medicine, just take it for the rest of your life and, you know, check your labs and like, we're supposed to be out of the box thinkers. Like I feel like in medicine, that's where, 
you know, that creative creativity and just kind of questioning things like that's where advances in medicine happen. And I just think that gets shot down a lot, you know, or we're just so burdened with the traditional system of like seeing the patients and writing the notes and doing all the things that we just, we don't have time for, you know, (laughs) thinking outside the box and asking questions and innovation. And there's such a disconnect, I think, between basic science research and, and clinical, what I call like boots on the ground physicians, you know, seeing real patients and, and real world problems. So let's talk a little bit about this. Um, you said at one point you had Graves and you had Hashimoto's. Can you talk to the people about just hypothyroidism in the U.S., like common causes, like what are what are Graves and Hashimoto's for somebody that has no clue what that is? Yeah. So Hashimoto's is a lot more common than Graves. Hashimoto's is probably the most common cause of hypothyroidism. So it's estimated, you know, Mark Starr wrote a book called Type 2 Hypothyroidism. He estimates that about 40 to 50 million people in the United States actually have hypothyroidism. And are, there's a lot of them that aren't being treated. But hypothyroidism is when your thyroid gland doesn't make enough thyroid hormone. So you get a signal from your brain, your pituitary gland in your brain called TSH. And that signal goes to your thyroid gland and then tells your thyroid to make active or free thyroid hormone. So T3 and T4. And so what we think is that, and then when you make the T3 and the T4, T4 is a hormone that your body makes and then your cells peripherally convert that to T3. T3 is your active thyroid hormone and that's what's actually taken into your cells and works. And so that's what helps your hair grow and your skin to you know, look good and your nails to grow. It helps control your weight and your metabolism and your sleep-wake cycles. I mean, thyroid hormone is very important there's T3 cells in almost every, there's T3 receptors in almost every cell of your body. And so when your thyroid is not working well, there's lots of things that can cause that. It's either that your brain is not giving the signal, so it's not dropping the TSH from your brain to stimulate your thyroid to make T3 and T4. It's called secondary hypothyroid, it's called secondary hypothyroidism. That's not as common. Um, typically what it is, is a lot of times you have a signal from your brain. It's just your body can't make enough thyroid hormone. And so I think a lot of the reason that happens is because of inflammation. So chronic inflammation, cortisol, insulin. So 93% of the United States is insulin. We, we have insulin problems. So 93% of the United States is metabolically unhealthy because they have high fasting insulin levels. And I know you know this, you talk about it a lot. Um, cortisol as well. And so a lot of people, I think, you know, myself included, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not eating well, your cortisol levels are high, your insulin levels are high, you have a lot of inflammation. And so your body just can't function how it needs to. So your thyroid's trying to make all this thyroid hormone, right? It's trying to make T4 and T3, but you've got all this inflammation and all this junk that's in the way. And so you make some, you just don't make enough. And so the problem is a lot of these people will present to their doctors with every symptom of hypothyroidism. And you look at their labs and like you said, you know, we're taught in medical school to put everyone in this box, right? And so they look at these labs and they say, oh, this, I mean, these labs look fine. So you're probably fine. So you're fine. But what we know is that actually those labs, your TSH, your T4, your T3, that you get in the periphery or in serum levels sometimes are not the exact same as what you'll find intracellularly. So in the cell, Mm -hmm. you need T3. And so I think a lot of the problem with people with hypothyroidism is, is just that they, maybe their labs look okay. And sometimes they don't, but they have this inability to convert their T4 to T3. And then even if they do make T3, they have this inability to pull that T3 into the cell 
because they have all this inflammation in their body. And so the receptor that grabs onto the T3 and tries to bring it into their body, that receptor sets in a lipid bilayer. So you know this from med school, right? And that lipid bilayer is supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to not be super, super taut. It's supposed to be kind of flexible so that things can come through that bilayer. Well, when your insulin's high and your cortisol's high and you have a lot of inflammation, it prevents that T3 at that receptor site from going, you know, from the receptor into the cell and actually working. So there's lots of different reasons, I think, today, especially that people have hypothyroidism or that their thyroid doesn't work. It's either that they're not making enough or they have all this inflammation, which a lot of times is what happens with Hashimoto's. So you get chronic inflammation from insulin resistance or from, you know, not eating the right things, not too much sugar, things like that. And this chronic inflammation over time, even though your thyroid's making thyroid hormone, it's not making either the right type, like the T4 can't convert to T3, or that T3 just can't get into the cell and actually work. So all of that is, is what you kind of call hypothyroidism. And Hashimoto's just means that you have an antibody, a TPO antibody, or a thyroglobulin antibody that's elevated. And that's a marker in your blood that can show that you have inflammation. And then if you have that antibody that's elevated, we say you have Hashimoto's. And then the question is, do you need thyroid medicine or not? And so that's kind of what Hashimoto's is. So it's, it's basically a lab test where you look at that antibody level. And then you determine based on somebody's symptoms, the clinical syndrome that they have, okay, do they need treatment or do they not? And unfortunately, the endocrine society, and I'm not sure what your society, I believe the OBGYN society, you know, goes off endocrine society. We say, well, if their TPO antibody is high and they have clinical symptoms, our guidelines say that actually half the time they probably do have Hashimoto's, but still we say in our guidelines, we'll don't treat them. And that's really frustrating, right? And, and their treatment is thyroid medicine, but they don't talk anything about diet or how to get rid of the inflammation or, or anything like that. So that's kind of a what Hashimoto's is. And then Graves is the opposite of that. It's actually where you have an antibody and you can get this antibody, you know, it can be genetic, it can be from viruses, it can be just from inflammation, but it's the opposite where the antibody actually attacks your thyroid. So it stimulates your thyroid to make thyroid hormone and you make too much. And so your body is just making a constant amount of thyroid hormone when you don't need it. So it develop, you develop something called hyperthyroidism. And a lot of people, I was one of the unfortunate ones, can get the Graves antibody and can be hyperthyroid. And it's almost like your thyroid burns itself out over time, makes too much thyroid hormone. I was taking medicine to kind of help stop that. And then instead of going back to normal, because I didn't take care of myself, you get, you know, you go on the other end of the spectrum and you end up hypothyroid. And then you get a different antibody that causes inflammation in your thyroid. And then your thyroid is just not able to make thyroid hormone. And that's what Hashimoto's is. Yeah. So worldwide, hypothyroidism is typically iodine deficiency and things like that. But in the U.S., they iodized salt, which kind of took that, quote unquote, mm-hmm. off the table. So I definitely see a lot more autoimmune hypothyroidism in my practice, positive TPO antibodies, thyroglobulin antibodies. So that's what she's referring to when she talks about Hashimoto's. Uh, you can have other causes, though, of hypothyroidism. Like I have never had a positive antibody test ever. And I've tested myself, you know, a few different times, but I developed hypothyroidism after my first pregnancy. And I definitely had insulin resistance. I had PCOS going into my pregnancies. 
And I just, I felt like crap. I was constipated. I was tired. I thought that's just what postpartum was like, but postpartum is a common time for people to develop hypothyroidism. And my TSH was above five, same thing. It was like, here's your thyroid medicine. I'm sending it to the pharmacy, recheck your labs in four to six weeks. And so, you know, I had two pregnancies after that. So it's an important time to treat hypothyroidism, right? You don't want to be hypothyroid in pregnancy. So I just took my meds, but after I fixed my insulin resistance, I was able to come off my thyroid medicine. My TSH has been wonderful. It's maintained below 2.5, um, throughout, uh, throughout this whole time. And so I think sometimes, uh, doctors are, are missing this. What lab tests if people have symptoms of hypothyroidism, they think there's something wrong with their thyroid. What should they be asking their doctor to check? Cause I have a lot of patients that come in with frustration that their PCP is only screened with a TSH and they want more advanced testing. Can you kind of break that down for the listeners that, that don't know as much as you and I know about all of this? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. I get asked that a lot too. So obviously TSH, and I think that's what most doctors check, right? That's what we're taught in med school. You really need to check a free T3 and a free T4 also, though, so you can see, like, what are those free hormone levels looking like as well. But then also, I think TPO antibodies are something that everyone should have checked as well to see if you do have Hashimoto's. You can do thyroglobulin antibodies, or we call them TG antibodies. The other thing that I always look at are iodine levels, because although we do put iodine in our salt in the United States now, it's estimated that 30 to 40% of people in the United States still somehow have iodine deficiency. And I actually see a lot of it as well. So I check Are you checking serum? Level just okay, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. blood serum, okay. iodine level. Yeah, I check that just to see, like, is their level low? And, and maybe, you know, I think maybe part of it could be because we're so inflamed. And if you're inflamed, you're not absorbing a lot of the stuff that you need. And so even though we do, you know, put salt on everything, I see three or four people a week that have iodine deficiency still. So I check that. The other things that I always look at as well is a vitamin D level because vitamin D is important. There's a vitamin D receptor in almost every cell of your body and B12 as well, because I think vitamin D and B12 are very helpful with making thyroid hormone work. So you don't want to have somebody who comes in who's hypothyroid, but also has a severe vitamin D or B12 deficiency that you miss. And then you put them on thyroid medicine. They don't feel any better. Well, it's because you missed something, you know, very important. And the last thing is ferritin. So this is one thing a lot of people don't know. If your ferritin is less than 70 and ferritin is an iron store, and I just checked out my blood level, it's really hard for your thyroid to be able to take T3 and T4 into the cell and actually use it and work. So ferritin is mm -hmm. kind of like a cofactor for getting those thyroid hormones into the cell. So I also check a ferritin level. So all of those things whenever I'm worried about thyroid disease. Interesting. Yeah. I think, um, you know, nutrient deficiencies, there's so many other nutrients that are required for all this conversion of T4 into T3 to use it, to get it across the membrane. Um, if you guys, you know, go look at the cellular pathways, there's, I mean, there's so many different nutrients that are required. And so when you're eating these poor, uh, you know, low nutrient diets, you might be getting the calories you need because we know caloric deficits are bad on the thyroid too. And I think that that's, you know, something people don't understand too, is that any caloric deficit does drag on the thyroid. Like it's a, it's a part of our nutrient sensing pathways. It's part of your environment. You know, when you don't have a lot of calories coming in, the body is sensing that there's not a lot of nutrition available in the environment and it down regulates, you know, it turns the engine down, turns the engine up when there's more calories coming in. So I think it's, 
something that people don't quite understand. So let's talk about treatment. So the doctor wants to write a prescription. So let's, what's the difference between Synthroid, Levothyroxine, Armour Thyroid, NP Thyroid? A lot of time patients are coming in asking for specific medicines. What's the difference between these? Yeah. So, so there's synthetic medication, right? That's made you know, by pharmaceutical companies. And then there's something called desiccated, which is what we get from animals right now, usually pigs, so ground up pig thyroid. So Synthroid, Levothyroxine, and, and the new one is Tyrosint. Those are all synthetic medications. And those mostly have T4. And so they're T4-based thyroid medications. And the point of those is when you take them, your body's supposed to take that T4, just like if your thyroid made it, and you're supposed to convert that T4 to T3. And so the problem with that, a lot of times, is if you have a lot of inflammation, then your body, even though you give them all that T4, it's having a hard time converting that T4 to T3, right? That's one of the things we talked about. And so a lot of times people, you know, and they'll read about this, if they're just on T4 formulations, they don't feel as well. And so that's why a lot of people will come in and ask for desiccated thyroid, like NP or Armour, Nature. Those are formulations that are made of ground up pig thyroid, but they have T4 and T3 in them. And so that's why a lot of people, you know, ask for those. And they actually did a study, a blinded study on patients with hypothyroidism, and they gave them either just a T4 formulation, like let's say Synthroid for four weeks, and then they crossed them over to a desiccated thyroid hormone. So we'll say Armour for four weeks. And if they started on armor, then they crossed them to a T4. So they either started with a T3 crossed to a T4 or started with a T4 crossed to a T3. And at the end, they said, which one made you feel better? And 78% of people chose the T3 formulation, which is pretty interesting. So we know that. And the crazy thing is my society knows that that's been published, but our guidelines, the endocrine society guidelines still say that you should treat these people with T4. Like T3 doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I would say I clinically see people who maybe it doesn't matter. Right. You see people who take Synthroid or Levothyroxine or Tyrosin, which is the newest T4 formulation that's supposed to be gluten free and have the least amount of dyes. Um, so I see people who take that and do just fine. But you see a lot of people who take it and they're still really tired. And so I think that's probably why. Now, Cytomel is a medication you can take that just has T3. So a lot of people will come in on Levo or Synthroid or Tyrosin and they are also on Cytomel. And so that, you know, that's a good thing because they're getting some T3, but the desiccated ones like Armour, Nature, they're already combined. So that's kind of the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find and most endocrinologists like do not want to touch NP thyroid, Armour thyroid desiccated with like a 10 foot pole. Um, there are some that are open to, yeah, liothyronine, Cytomel, like the addition yeah. of, so like what do they teach endocrine fellows about when to add in T3? Let's just take desiccated off the table. Yeah. But like, wh what is an indication to add cytomel or liothyronine or this T3 hormone into the combo? That's a great question. I will sadly tell you that as a fellow, I was never talked to about T3 ever, not one time. Mm. So I never, you know, nobody ever said anything about it. It was just for our guidelines, you know, look at TSH, look at free T4, T3 doesn't matter. And so that's how I practiced the first two to three years of my career. And so I think that's probably why a lot of my patients didn't feel very well. Right. Um, and so I've spent since 2020 practicing a little bit differently, but as in the fellowship that I was in, I guess I can't speak for every, you know, every fellowship in the nation, but I would say most of them don't talk about T3 and we don't teach people in med school this either. Right. Because the guidelines say you follow TSH and you follow T4 and that T3 doesn't matter. 
but we know, I mean, the frustrating thing too, is there's a lot of literature published. If you go Google T3, there's a lot of endocrinology published literature that talks about how T3 is actually important. And we know that there's a disconnect between T4 and TSH levels at the pituitary versus T3 in the periphery. And we know that people feel better on T3 and there are actually studies that show you do better from a heart standpoint, from a brain standpoint. I mean, lots of studies out there that endocrinologists have published and have been published in endocrinology journals. We just haven't updated our guidelines. So unfortunately, I, to answer your question, nobody ever talked to me about T3. It was something I started doing yeah. in my own practice. Um, now, just because I'm an OBGYN, I just want to highlight for the listeners a time during pregnancy where T4 is really important is, uh, in pregnancy because yeah. T4 crosses the placenta gets converted into T3 in the baby. And then eventually the baby will grow its own thyroid gland, uh, and yeah. do this, but T it is important to have normal T4 levels. And sometimes patients on too much T3 replacement, their T4 levels will drop. And so that is an important time to, to, uh, make sure that that's treated properly. Well, one thing you mentioned uh, was that uh, this new tyrosine, this new T4 is gluten-free and dye-free. Why? I don't understand why medicines have gluten and dyes in them, like in the first place. Do you have, I, I, I don't do you have an answer? I don't either. And that's just what they tow. You know, that's their like tyrosine wants you to know, hey, there's no gluten. There's no, um, I don't know. That's a good, that's a good question. But there are desiccated ones that have gluten too. I have a patient that's on a specifically compounded formulation by the compounding pharmacy because we were having trouble even finding desiccated forms that were gluten-free. It's just wild to me, but I I think they use it as a binder, like as a binding agent to like make it into that hard tablet. That's my suspicion. I think that's why, but, um, it just blows my mind. Like, <laughs> and you make a very good point. Ingredients. I take care of a lot of pregnant people and you make a very good point. Like when people are pregnant, their T4 is really important because babies don't have a thyroid until they're about eight, 16 to 18 weeks. And so that is one population where I really look at, I don't even look at their TSH as much. And I'm sure you know this when you're pregnant, your TSH goes down. That's just mm-hmm. naturally what happens from a physiologic standpoint. But even when their TSH goes down, you're more worried about their, their free T4. So, yeah. But yeah, a good point that people are pregnant need to know. So if a patient gets diagnosed with hypothyroidism, whether it's autoimmune, not autoimmune, they get the prescription, they start the prescription, they're going to come back in four to six weeks. What are other things they can do that can maybe eventually help them improve things, get off medicines? Like what are these other lifestyle things that can, that can help improve thyroid function? That their endocrinologist is not telling them. (laughs) I love that question. Yeah. So I made a handout for patients that, you know, that we give patients, but when I start to talk to them about it, a lot of times they look at you like you have three heads and I'm sure you get a lot of this too, right? So the first thing I'm going to tell them is you need to get gluten out of your diet. And that's because, I mean, there's something called zonulin that holds your cells together in your intestine. So it, it holds your cells together, kind of like a finger trap, right? And so you want your cells of your intestine to be really tight and locked together. And there's a protein called zonulin that holds them together. So gluten and sugar just obliterate and destroy that protein. And so then that's what causes you to start having leaky gut and issues with your gut. And then as soon as that happens, you get inflammation, right? Because if everything that you're putting in your mouth is then seeping into your blood vessels, you're going to have issues, right? We're supposed to have a a GI tract for a reason. And so I tell patients, I mean, if you want your Hashimoto's to, if you want to cure it, if you want to get off medicine, and if you want to feel better, you've got to get rid of gluten. And, you know, I get all the excuses. I'm sure like you do. I can't do that. I have kids. I have a busy life. I have, you know, but 
I tell people, you know, I haven't had gluten in probably six or seven years. I haven't. And it was a lot harder a long time ago, right? Actually, it's been longer than that. It's been closer to 10 years since I've eaten gluten. Um, it used to be really, really hard. It's not as hard now. So I tell them, you know, a lot of it is your diet because your thyroid is a, a, a systemic representation of your overall health and your gut has something to do with that. So I tell them they need to get gluten out of their diet. Ideally, they need to get sugar out of their diet and dairy. You know, a lot of people are have issues with dairy, not everyone, but that's something I tell them, you know, you can consider that as well, especially when you're really inflamed. Sometimes you can add it back. But I think gluten and sugar are the main things. So that's one thing that we talk about. And then we talk about fixing all these vitamin deficiencies that you and I were talking about, right? So you've got to make sure you get your vitamin D level, I think, above 60. Um, B12, you want to make sure your B12 levels are adequate. So we, I tell them to replace it to at least 650. So we talk about that. Ferritin, making sure your ferritin's above 70 so that your thyroid can actually work looking at iodine levels and making sure those are adequately replaced. And then the other thing we talk about is just general health, right? So like you need to make sure you're sleeping, just like, you know, you talk about in your book, which I think you did a great job with that. You've got to sleep, right? So you've got to sleep seven to eight hours a night. So we've got to make sure that's happening. Try to lower stress. So like meditation, yoga, just simple things that help overall well-being because then that helps with your cortisol and stress levels. So diet, yeah. sleep stress, nutrient deficiencies are the main things that we talk about. Exercise too. So I tell people, you know, you need to do some form of exercise every single day. Yeah. I, um, when it comes to gluten too, you know, uh, for people listening, I think that what people don't understand is how bad these ultra processed foods are. Like, it's not just the gluten. It's the fact that like traditional bread, like if you go to the bread aisle, they used bleached flour, so literally like they've taken away like the, the microbiome that was even around the original like wheat germ. Like nobody's going to the field and just like chomping on wheat. Like they've bleached it. They've pulverized it, you know, into a flour. Now they've added preservatives, dyes, like whatever it is. Like the reason that these things are shelf stable for more than like days to weeks to months to like years, whatever it is, like that is what is so bad for our body. So like, I always, when they just give me like the deer in the headlights look, it's for me, it's just like, where's the low hanging fruit? Like, how can we get like the most processed things out of your diet? Like start there. I think as people start to like feel better and feel more empowered, they start to buy in. But like people listening, like you have to realize how bad our food is. Like it is so bad. Um, in other countries, like they eat bread, like in France, like they eat bread and cheese and things like that. And they don't have the problems that we have, but like even their breads that contain gluten don't use like bleached flowers and like all the things like it's real bread, like with real ingredients. And so if you can figure out how to eat foods with less ingredients, like, I just think that's such a good, good starting point. Um, but yes, for, for Hashimoto's, like there are things that just incite inflammation. And I think that that's one thing to consider. Um, and all the things you said, I mean, eventually, you know, you can have the greatest diet, but if you are in like some really toxic marriage and a horrible job and you're not sleeping and you're on night shift, and I think people just don't realize how these things really play into our health and, what we do to our bodies. And we're, we were born to be like really resilient creatures, <laughs> but like the right. body can only take so much. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's hard. Okay. 
I want to flip into insulin resistance, a question I'm getting tons and tons of, of DMs about. Obviously, you know I'm a huge fan of low-carbon ketogenic diets, but GLP-1 medicines, this new hot topic, semaglutide, terzepatide, all the things. Talk to us about GLP-1s and these medicines. I guess give us some basic information about what they are. Yeah. So this is a huge topic right now, right? And so I get a lot of questions about this too. And, you know, I'm going to play both sides of it. So this is my personal. So 40% of Americans are obese and 30% are overweight, right? So 70% of us have a weight issue. And so although I'm not a huge proponent of let's just throw medicines at people, right? we've got to do something in this country. Like, and you know, we've got to do something. It starts with behavior. I mean, there's a lot of things, but if you can give somebody a tool that's going to help them at least start this behavior process, right. Going in the right direction, because we are eating all these ultra processed foods and just craving them and wanting them. Then that's where I think, you know, these GLP ones, they, they have a role. I'm not saying that I want people to stay on them forever, but I'm also saying that I don't want you know, the world to continue at the trajectory that we are, at least in the United States, because we're going to be in big trouble. And so I do, I am a proponent of these medicines in the right people and they need to be monitored. But so what they do, they all work similar. So GLP-1 is a, is a receptor, I'm sorry, is a hormone in our body. And basically what it does is it helps regulate our hunger hormones, right? So when you eat food, when you put something in your mouth, an enzyme called GIP is released from your saliva almost instantly, and then goes to your gut and helps something called GLP-1 be made. And so what that does is that tells your body as soon as you eat, like, hey body, I need you to stop what you're doing. Food's gonna be coming, right? So it tells your stomach, like stomach, I want you to stop emptying, like stop getting rid of all the gastric juice so that when the food comes into the stomach, we can absorb the nutrients that we need, do what we need for digestion. So it kind of stops your gastric emptying. And then it goes to your pancreas and it tells your pancreas, hey, food's coming, so I'm going to need you to start making some insulin. So that as blood sugar goes up, we can tag ourselves to the glucose molecule. We can take the glucose where we need it to go, our muscle, our liver, wherever, and help use this food source, this glucose that people are eating, put it into a cell where it's needed. So you need insulin to do that, right? So those are two of the things that it does. Um, And so GLP-1 goes up as we eat, hopefully, if everything works well. And so that our stomach will will stop emptying, so our food sets in our stomach, so that while we're eating, our food's setting there instead of just running right through our stomach. So then that also creates some stretch in our stomach that then feeds back to our brain and tells our brain, like, hey, there's food there. You've eaten enough. You should stop. So it helps give you that fullness effect as well. So those are the three main things that it does. It's going to help slow down your gastric emptying so you can absorb your nutrients. As your stomach gets fuller, it's actually going to tell your brain like, hey, we're good. And then it's going to help your pancreas make insulin so that when your sugar starts to go up, your body can use that glucose and put it where it needs to go, whether it be in your skeletal muscle or your liver. And then whatever's left store is fat so that you can use later. So that's kind of the point of GLP-1. So it's, it's, I look at it as a satiety hormone, right? The problem is when you overeat and you have insulin resistance or even worse, you develop diabetes, people with diabetes have very little amounts of GLP-1, right? So they have very minute amounts where let's say you and I have a hundred molecules of GLP-1. When you have diabetes, you have four or five. So those people, when they eat, when you have diabetes and you eat, 
you know, I have patients who tell me all the time, like I eat and eat and eat and I never get full. And I used to think like, well, that doesn't make sense. Right. Well, it's true because their stomach is constantly emptying. And so they never, their stomach never really stretches and they never get that feedback to their brain that says like, stop. And so when they're eating and eating and eating, their pancreas has to make all this insulin because their blood sugar is going up. And our body knows that our sugar shouldn't be that high. It's, it's toxic to us. And so their pancreas is just constantly making all this insulin because they're eating so much. And so over time, that starts to damage your pancreas, right? Because your pancreas is working, working, working all the time and never gets a break. And so these people with low GLP-1 levels, that's, I mean, that's why they tell you I'm hungry all the time. I eat all the time. I'm, I'm craving sugar all the time. Because also when they're eating, everything's just floating around their body and nothing's getting put where it needs to go because they don't have enough insulin to grab onto their glucose molecules and put them in their skeletal muscle. Um, a lot of times this is getting stored as fat instead of something they can burn. And so then two hours later, they're hungry again, right? And so they're eating more. And so that's kind of how the medicine works when you take these injectable medicines is it gives you back all that GLP-1 that your body naturally had before you started to lose it. So you get full a lot faster. You don't eat as much. And whenever you do eat, your body can, I tell patients, it can put your food where it needs to be stored, right? It'll put it in your skeletal muscle. It'll give you a little bit of backup in your liver instead of just putting everything in your fat to begin with. So that's kind of how they work. Yeah. Um, so are there risks to GLP ones? I mean, what would be the downside for patients? I think they're an amazing tool yeah. too, by the way, I use them in my practice for people yeah. listening. I think they, yeah. they are a good tool for the right patient. Right. So there are, so there are some risks, right? So one of the things, if you've had medullary thyroid cancer, you can't take them. Thankfully, medullary thyroid cancer only affects about 5% of people with thyroid cancer. So it's not super common. And typically people with medullary know that they have it because it's a genetic type of cancer. And so if you have medullary, you know, because your children need to be tested, et cetera. So it's not, you know, most people have papillary or thyroid cancer. Those people are fine to take it. But if you've had medullary, you cannot. The other thing is pancreatitis. So people who have ever had pancreatitis, you, you don't want to put these people on GLP ones, unless you know what caused their pancreatitis. So like if you're somebody who had pancreatitis because you had a gallstone that caused that, and now you don't have your gallbladder, it's okay. Or if you're somebody who had alcohol induced pancreatitis and now you're not drinking, that's okay. So I mean, so that's one of the contraindications would be pancreatitis. And then if you have medullary thyroid cancer. Other than that, as long as somebody's triglyceride level, so that's a level, a blood level, uh, a type of cholesterol, as long as those aren't very high. So my kind of cutoff threshold with triglycerides is about 350 or 400. If your triglycerides are higher than that, you can have a little bit of issue with GLP-1 because again, that risk of possible pancreatitis. Everyone else, though, I think it's a good candidate for, um, you know, somebody who especially has insulin resistance, right? So PCOS, insulin resistance, these people are so inflamed. And if we can just get those insulin levels to come down, we know, I mean, I know you know this, but I see it all the time. If you have somebody whose insulin level is 55, it doesn't matter what they're eating or how well they're exercising. They're not losing weight. Like you got to get those insulin levels to come down, right? Because insulin is a growth hormone, right? It makes you grow. It makes everything grow. And so until your insulin level comes down, you're not going to lose weight. And so I think in anyone who has high insulin levels and is struggling with weight, and especially a lot of people who are addicted to ultra processed foods, these medicines are really great because they help lower your want to eat those things. They help lower your insulin. 
when your insulin starts to come down, you feel better, right? You start to lose weight. You actually want to exercise. You're not so tired after you eat. And so I think they're actually a really good treatment option for most people, unless you have a few contraindications. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I've had great success with these medicines. Um, but I always use these as an adjunct to lifestyle modifications. And I think that's the important piece. Now the diabetes and endocrine uh, societies and obesity medicine societies are saying these are lifelong medications. Obesity is a lifelong multifactorial, you know, uh, problem. What do you, how, what is kind of, you know, your view on this? I think I agree with you. So I tell people, you know, this is kind of a, I guess, sort of a crutch to get you going in the right direction. But ultimately what we're trying to do is help you make better lifestyle choices, right? So it's about a choice. Everything you put in your mouth is a choice. Everything we do all day long is a choice. And so it's really hard when you have a bad diet and bad sleep schedule and you're stressed and, you know, we're not doing a lot of right things. It's really hard to tell somebody just fix all of it. And so I agree with you. I give them this, but I tell them like, this is something that's going to be a tool to help you start making better choices, right? So you got to start making better choices with what you're eating. you got to start making better lifestyle choices in general. Like we have to start sleeping. We have to move, you know, all of it together has to work. Um, and so I agree with you. It's something that I don't think you have to stand them forever. I've had several patients lose over a hundred pounds on them and come completely off of them and not gain weight back. I've had several patients recently who have lost, you know, how much weight they want to lose and have stopped them and, and haven't gained weight back. So I think it's, again, about changing your, your lifestyle choices. I think it helps people realize, though, that they can do it, right? So when they've done something for 10 years, um, you know, it's hard to think, well, if I do something different, it's actually going to work. But once you get, you know, their hormone levels, their insulin levels, everything working in the right direction and get them in a good mental place and making the right choices, then our body, like you said, is very resilient and a lot of times fixes it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, when you look at the studies, they, they've now done some longer term follow-up and the people that were on the initial trials that were on these medicines for a year or two, and there is some regain that happens for patients. But I think if you likely look at the factors that cause regain, it's like any diet, right? I have patients that are like, well, yeah, I'd I did a low carb ketogenic diet for six months. And then I went back to eating how I used to eat and I regained all the weight. Yeah. If you go back to doing all the things you did, you're going to get the same results you've always gotten. So I think there has to be a conversation with patients about what the off ramp is, you know, as you get down to your normal weight, I've used, as you've normalized these things, what's the off ramp to these medications? You know, what is, how do we maintain these results? And I think that uh, you have to give patients those tools uh, or it is a lifelong medication. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, people who just want drugs, then, okay, well, you know, here's your, but it, it's not going to prolong your quality of life. It's not going to, you know, it's not like who wants to be injecting themselves with things forever. But I think it, it is, it is an amazing tool. I've had patients say, oh my God, this is the first time in my life where I've felt satiety. You know, this is the first time in my life that I, you know, have seen success and they've tried a multitude of different things and medicine's great, right? We're going to, we're going to, we're going to see a new wave of something better than GLP ones coming down the line. I'm sure we will. Um, but if you, you know, don't want pharma to be profiting bajillions of dollars, there definitely are ways to do this without medications, but, um, I live like with one foot on, on both sides of each world. And, um, you know, we always have to meet the patients, you know, where they're at. And, um, I do think that they, they can be a good tool for the right patient. 
Um, okay, let's uh, let's transition to a different topic. Um, hormone therapy. Talk to me about hormone therapy. I know you're a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. Um, and I think we're starting to hear the conversation change a little bit about menopause and something that was only available to men for a really long time and something that was really kind of shrouded for women for, you know, very specific patients, short duration of time. I think we're seeing the pendulum swing. So talk to us about hormone therapy, estrogen, progesterone, and and specifically testosterone. I want to talk about too, um, for women. Let's talk about women. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think this is super exciting for women. You know, I think in 2001, whenever the WHI came out, it was a, it was a huge disservice for women. Right. So we kind of blew up this whole shortest, shortest hormone for the least amount of time. But then when they've gone back and looked, you know, there's been lots of retrospective study and analysis since that time. There's been, you know, we, we went back and we've seen that maybe we've done a big disservice in taking women off of hormones. It's certain hormones, you know, so progestins, yes, increase your risk of issues, but a lot of bioidentical hormones, estrogen, testosterone, you know, micronized progesterone don't cause this increased risk of cancer and actually do a lot of great things for women. And so I think, you know, one of the things I really am passionate about and trying to help is trying to help reteach physicians this. And, you know, so you know this, and I'm sure you read these articles, but I saw a lady today who had, you know, ERPR positive breast cancer, very small breast cancer. She came to see me and said, you know, I've been on these estrogen blockers and I'm miserable. Like I would rather die than live how I feel right now. I'm so miserable. Um, you know, just telling me things that will break your heart about vaginal dryness and brain fog. And, you know, no one will give me anything. Um, when, when there's some studies that show that she can very safely take testosterone, you know? Um, and so I think it's just changing this whole mindset though with doctors, right. And making, making doctors read literature. Like a lot of us, you know, we go to school and we're told things and we just accept it and believe it. And none of us ever go and actually look at the literature, but there is a ton of literature now that is showing you can do bioidentical hormones. And in fact, a lot of times you should because you end up with, with more benefits, right? And so, you know, women, let's talk about women. So estrogen, we know that when we go through menopause, right, we lose a quarter of our bone mass in three to four years after we go through menopause. We also know that one in seven women after the age of 50 are going to have an osteoporotic fracture. And about a quarter of those women will die in a year. I mean, that's crazy, right? And we know that estrogen is the sole reason of that. We also know that one in three women that die, die of heart disease, right? And women, we get really complicated heart disease. We don't get easy heart disease like men. You know, men get heart disease and they get, you know, a stent or they get, uh, you know, double bypass or triple bypass and they're fine. When women get heart disease, it's, it's bad. It's everywhere. You can't fix it. And a lot of women who die of heart disease, they just suddenly die, like didn't have symptoms, right? Well, we know that estrogen helps protect that, right? So estrogen helps our bones and it helps our heart and it helps our skin. And all those, yes, you can get, you know, yes, there is a risk of, of breast cancer um, with estrogen. What's What's been shown is that that risk with estrogen is pretty low if you do bioidentical estrogen. And let's also keep in mind that 92% of the time in this country, we cure breast cancer, right? So you cure breast cancer 92% of the time. And a lot of times your risk of recurrence is anywhere from 2 to 6% of breast cancer recurrence over your lifetime. But yet we tell people, well, you can't take hormones, right? No, you can't have estrogen. You can't have testosterone. But yet we know, you know, one in three of us are dying of heart disease. And, you know, 
the things that I told you about bone disease, and, and that's just estrogen. Um, if you look at testosterone, I mean, women, we need testosterone. Men do too, but we definitely need it. It helps so much with our brain, right? So brain fog, we have testosterone receptors in our brain so that, you know, fogginess that you get as you get older or as you lose testosterone levels, it helps with that. Muscle mass is another thing, right? So you're very passionate about muscle mass. I am too. As you get older, you lose muscle mass. And when you start to lose muscle mass and you get sarcopenia, bad things start happening, right? And so it's very important to keep, you know, to help with muscle. Um, and we actually know that testosterone, if you look at it from a receptor standpoint, it doesn't increase your risk of cancer. Testosterone actually downregulates alpha receptors in your breast, right? And alpha receptors are the awful receptors in your breast that, in, you know, when alpha is high, it increases BCL2, and that's what causes breast cancer. Well, testosterone down, downregulates those, those receptors. Um, and so it, it doesn't increase your risk of breast cancer. The other thing that we know is if you have testosterone and you have more muscle mass, that's a good thing too, right? Because the more fat mass you have, fat is an endocrine organ, right? So bad things happen in fat cells. One of the bad things that happen in fat cells is your testosterone converts to something called estrone. And estrone is bad estrogen, right? Estrone has five times affinity for the alpha receptor in your breast, which causes breast cancer. So if you're you know, keeping something from women like testosterone that helps with promote muscle mass and decrease fat mass. So if they have more fat mass, then they're gonna have more conversion of what testosterone they do have to estrone. And then that estrone increases their risk of breast cancer. So there's just, there's lots of things that I think are just, you know, misinformation out there, maybe information that people haven't, they don't realize or they haven't read. Um, but I mean, I treat a ton of women with hormones, lots of, you know, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. And I wouldn't say that a hundred percent of them feel better. I mean, and, and you can weigh in on that, but I would say that 70 to 80% of them feel better. And so I think it's a conversation that, you know, you need to have with your physician. Um, you need to go to somebody who, is willing to have that conversation with you and willing to listen to you and, and look at the research and then determine whether those hormones are, are good or whether you're a good candidate for, for those hormones or not. But a lot of times people are, and I think it's unfortunate that a lot of people can't find providers to have this conversation with and, and at least get the options, right? Because I feel like I'm a doctor to help you through all your, you know, through whatever you need. So like, let's say you come to me and whatever complaint you have or, or issue that you have, I'm here to to help guide you, right? I'm not here to ultimately make the decision for you. I'm here to tell you, hey, this is the treatment options. These are, you know, this is the research, but it's ultimately up to the patient. And I think there's a lot of people out there who suffer and feel really bad. And some people just say, no, absolutely not. You can't have hormones. And I don't necessarily think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So the time to have the conversation is at menopause, at menopause, not a year later, not five years later, not 10 years later. It's at the time of menopause. And, uh, because it happens, what happens is you, the clinical definition of menopause is no periods for 12 months, but in those 12 months, when you have not had the cycle, your estrogen levels have gone to less than 25. So now you've gone a year, mm -hmm. right? So you need to start having this conversation right when you start missing cycles, right when you start having hot flashes and night sweats, when you start sleeping poorly, when you're developing this brain fog, it's time to start having the conversation about whether this is a good idea for you. And there are pharmaceutical options for bioidentical hormone replacement. You can get on an estradiol mm -hmm. patch. You can get on micronized progesterone. You can use your pharmaceutical benefits. There's also compounded versions, creams, um, pellet therapy. There's lots of different varieties of, of hormone replacement therapy. 
And you're totally right. Every patient brings up the breast cancer risk. I can't, uh, I don't want to talk about hormones. My grandma had breast cancer. They said it was due to the hormones she took. Well, your grandma's hormones and today's options are completely different, first of all. And what we know is that estrogen is actually very protective to the breast. The women in the in the arm of the trial that took estrogen only had less breast cancer. Uh, we know that when they take micronized progesterone and they don't take medroxyprogesterone acetate and norethindrone acetate and these other progestins, synthetic progestins, they don't have as much breast cancer. Testosterone, my colleague Kelly Casperson, a urologist, uh, was just sharing a study the other day showing how testosterone replacement is protective to the breast. There's less breast cancer in the women taking testosterone. So to villainize the hormones that women endogenously make and to fear monger them into the fact that that will cause breast cancer um, has been such a disservice to women and has taken this conversation off the table for not only patients, but there's just practitioners that trained in an era where it was so villainized. And I love that this conversation is opening back up. Um, I hope that the women listening can find practitioners in their communities that are more up to date with things and more open-minded about things. Cause there's definitely women out there suffering that don't need to be suffering. Um, and vaginal estrogen therapy is safe for a hundred percent of women. Once again, it's your choice. Every time I get on my soapbox and start talking about HRT, I'll get somebody that's like, our ancestors didn't take hormones. I'm not putting estrogen in my vagina. Do whatever you get to live <laughs> with whatever choices you make. Okay. That is yeah. what is so amazing about the world and America is you get to live with the consequences of your choices. So I'm telling you right now, I will be using vaginal estrogen till I die. You will have to rip the estrogen uh, <laughs> patch off my stomach and take away my progesterone and testosterone. I'm not menopausal yet, but uh, I'm telling you right now with what I know, I, and patients ask you that, like, what would you do if, you know, what would you do? Um, and I think it's always an interesting question, but at the same time, you have to, your belief in your treatment matters. I mean, the placebo effect, I talked about this in my book. Literally, we can tell patients that there is no medicine in this and it's going to make you better. And 50% of the time it makes you better. So your belief in it makes a big difference too. Um, the, mound, the mind is very powerful. So um, I love that conversation. People need to, uh, people need to think about that. Um, okay. One more question and then we'll wrap up here. Um, we talk about weight loss. We talked about using GLP ones for weight loss. You kind of briefly mentioned, um, muscle and how muscle was important, right? We don't want to fall. We don't want to break our hip. We want strong bones. We want strong muscles. Can you highlight for people though, what role muscle plays in the endocrine system is muscle an endocrine organ? I mean, that's a good question. I would say somewhat yes, right? Because I feel like yes, because if you have a lot of muscle, then whenever you do eat, maybe you make some poor choices, right? Um, and you eat a little bit too much sugar or carbohydrates, muscle is going to help buffer some of that, right? So whenever you do have a lot of sugar, your body makes insulin, your insulin has somewhere to put that sugar, right? So either that glucose is going to go to your skeletal muscle once your skeletal muscle is full, it's going to go to your liver because our body. So what happens when we eat is our body first gets energy from our skeletal muscle. So in the form of glucose, and then once our skeletal muscle is depleted, it's going to go to our liver and get some energy. And after that, it goes to our fat. So the more muscle you have, the more 
technically food you're going to be able to eat, the higher your sugar can get. And the more it can just kind of be put into your skeletal muscle, maybe a little bit into your liver and less is going to be stored as fat. And so, you know, I have this conversation with women. I'm sure you do all the time. They look at me and they'll say like, Oh, what do you eat? Like a thousand calories a day. I'm like, actually I eat a lot. I eat like 140 grams of protein a day. I eat probably well over 2000 calories. I'm not a huge calorie counter, but I eat more food than I've ever eaten in my life, but I also have more muscle than I've ever had. Right. So the more muscle you mm -hmm. have, the more you are able to eat things because your, your body needs it. And so I do almost feel like muscle is an endocrine organ because you need muscle to help, you know, buffer some of that, that glucose and, and insulin level. So, I mean, it is very important. It's going to help keep your blood sugars regulated. It's going to help keep your insulin levels down. Like you said, it's going to help, you know, it does help your bones a lot. So the more muscle you have when you're walking around, it's going to keep your bones strong. So women, as we get older, we need that muscle and that mechanical bearing on our bones so that they don't get weak. So I do feel like muscle is a, is part of an endocrine. Organ yeah. I mean, I think if system. we just pulled a hundred people, including some health pr practitioners, you know, what role does muscle play in the body, right? People would say it helps with locomotion. It helps us walk. It helps us you know, lift heavy things, do activities of daily living. It's absolutely an endocrine organ. Like it helps with insulin sensitivity. Sure. It's a great disposal agent of glucose. Um, it talks to, it talks to our brain. Like when we exercise, we secrete these little chemicals, myokines, like having muscle is protective to all the organ systems. Like it's, it's seriously important for successful aging. And we have to stop thinking about muscle just as like, looking ripped and buff and strong. Like when women focus on losing fat, they're so obsessed with the scale and it doesn't tell the story of muscle and body composition. So I hope that in medicine, we can really start to get away from waist circumferences and really start talking about, listen, how much muscle do you have? How much visceral fat do you have? Cause we focus so much on subcutaneous fat and, um, there can be women that can have a little bit of subcutaneous fat and still be metabolically healthy. Right. So I think that we really have to start telling the whole story, um, when it comes to body composition. So I love that you're an endocrinologist that focuses on muscle for sure. Yeah. And that's it. That's a good point. I tell patients this all the time. So like when I was sick, you know, when I was sick and I had Hashimoto's and I, I actually weighed less than I do now. Right. So I probably actually weighed seven pounds less than I do now. But I also wore bigger clothes. Like my body composition was very different, right? I had a lot more fat. And my insulin levels were higher. My TPO level was higher. Now I weigh about seven or eight pounds more than I did. But I'm leaner. Like I wear smaller clothes. My insulin level. So I tell women this all the time. I call it a cry box. Like I'm like, I don't care what the cry box is, right? You shouldn't care. You shouldn't weigh yourself. I actually don't weigh myself anymore. It shouldn't matter. What should matter is how your clothes fit, how you feel, right? Because that's what's important. And so I hate, I seriously hate that women do that. And I tell patients this all the time. Like I say, when I walked in this room, did you look at me and say, oh, I bet she weighs 125 or I bet she weighs 130. Nobody does that, right? When, when we got on here, I bet you didn't look at me and say, I wonder what she weighs. And I didn't look at you and say that either, but we do it to ourselves. And it's just, yeah. it's terrible. What you should do is say like, oh, she looks good. You know, I look good. I feel good. That's what matters. The cry box doesn't matter because yeah. you know, we have weight fluctuations from, from water weight and, you know, but what should really matter is, is how you feel and, and your muscle and, you know, how you just, how you feel and, and what you look like. And again, I'm seven to eight pounds heavier than I was, but way healthier waste, you know, wear smaller clothes. And so that's, what's important. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's about being strong and healthy. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, transition into the semen analysis. And a, a couple months ago, I got led on to an article, uh, a research study about aloe for subclinical hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. So I, of course, had to go find the study. And it's from the clinical, uh, it's from a, a translational endocrinology journal published in March of 2018. Um, the study is titled Marked Improvement of Thyroid Function and Autoimmunity by Aloe juice in patients with subclinical hypothyroidism. So this study was kind of discussing that natural compounds can decrease serum levels of thyroid autoantibodies. Okay. Plants, plants are part of medicine, right? Aloe is a plant. Um, and so they looked at, uh, let's see, uh, they looked, the study stems from an observation of patients that had Hashimoto's thyroiditis related subclinical hypothyroidism and they checked the thyroid panel on these people who were taking aloe uh, juice and for thyroid unrelated reasons, essentially. And they noticed that um, the TPO antibodies um, got better in these patients and their serum-free uh, T4 got better as well. So they enrolled 30 people uh, into the trial and all of them took uh, 50 mils of this aloe juice for nine months. And then they tested TSH, free T4, um, free T3, and their TPO antibodies. And they were performed, the lab tests were performed at baseline three months and nine months. The uh, TSH, free T4, and TPO antibodies improved significantly, even at the three-month mark. Um, and then of course, also at the nine month mark, however, the free T3 decreased uh, significantly at the, at the three month mark. Um, but there was no further decrease at the nine month mark. Um, so this is super, super, super interesting. They basically concluded that daily intake of like 50 to hundred mils of this aloe juice for nine months, um, decreased the burden of thyroid autoimmune inflammation. So pro it's probably through some inflammatory pathway that the mm -hmm. aloe, juice helped decrease inflammation and helped improve their autoimmune thyroid problems. So this just kind of, you know, uh, kind of opens the, uh, oh, they also said that uh, it rescues thyrocyte function because there's a decreased need for conversion of T4 into more active T3 um, because aloe juice induced inhibition of T4 deiodination. So it's just fascinating. I think sometimes we don't think about, um, you know, all the little things that are contributing. There's so many little pieces of the puzzle when it comes to these. It's like if somebody has any autoimmune condition, I don't know, psoriasis, for instance, like I'll just name another one so that we don't think we're picking on people with Hashimoto's. <laughs> There's so many little things that are contributing. Like it's not just one thing. It's not just like one food you're eating. We've talked about all this. Like it's what you're eating. It's how you're sleeping. It's how you're dealing with stress. Like there's so many things, but I have, I've, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on this ever since, you know, when patients are like, well, what can I do? That's not taking medicine. I'm like, I don't know. Start taking aloe juice. <laughs> yeah. Some aloe and some good supplements. Sleep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. There's no magic out there, you guys, but this is, you know, these are all little things to consider. Um, anything that helps reduce inflammation and get your body back to its, its resilient baseline. The body is always just trying to find homeostasis. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Well, Dr. Smith, tell people how they can find you, how they can find modern, modern endocrine. Is that your, what your practice is yeah. called? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a website, it's just modernendocrine.com. I have an Instagram page that I just started 
few months ago. So it's just at modern endocrine underscore. I have a TikTok and a Facebook as well. Um, and I think I have a YouTube channel also, just modern endocrine. So, um, that's it clinic in Oklahoma city. I'm just kind of getting started, but I have some good resources on my website for patients, a lot of patient handouts. I have some it's supplement information as well. If they, people just want to read about what different supplements do for your body and what different diseases they're good for as well. Um, and then just trying to make some good educational information on, on TikTok. And awesome. Instagram. Yeah. There's, there's too, too many platforms. I can't keep up. <laughs> I, know. I think I'd post the same thing on all of them. Right. But some people just use one or the other, but I think, you know, I love what you're doing too. I appreciate you and I appreciate people who are doing podcasts and trying to help people, you know, feel better and just get really good information. Thankfully we have the way to do that now. Right. Um, people have the option to listen or to get on Instagram and find out this information. So they're not stuck with just the answers that I got for a long time, which is just take this medicine. It's so true. It's so true. Well, Dr. Cassie Smith, thank you for your time. You guys, seriously, I mean, the people I have on this podcast, they're just, this is their free time. Like I'm, we're not paying them to come on here. You know, um, these are people who really just are passionate about educating people. Um, and, uh, I thank you all for listening. Please share this with your friends and family because you're helping us spread these messages around the world. We will catch you guys on the next episode.